from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. When we saw false negatives, a lot of times it seemed like it was related to the patient not collecting a good sample. We had to do a lot of looking at the instructions uh, for these tests and thinking about, is this readable? Is this clear and understandable? Should we have more illustrations of how the um, sample should be collected and what the test results are going to look like? Knowing what I know now, I probably would have um, pushed to have some of the earlier studies designed a little bit differently. We didn't know that there would be such a change in um, the viral loads. I'm Sarah Fenske. If you've used an at-home test to figure out whether you have COVID-19 or just those infernal allergies, you may have a patient at Barnes Jewish Hospital to thank. More than 6,500 patients there lended their nostrils to an unprecedented effort aimed at developing reliable, easy-to-use at-home tests. Their work determined which tests stood up to real-life conditions, making all of our lives just a bit easier now that COVID is, well, everywhere. And joining us now to explain what went into this effort is Dr. Stacy House. She is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and principal investigator in the clinical trials of COVID-19 diagnostic tests at Washington University School of Medicine. So Dr. House, welcome. Thanks for having me. So Dr. House, I understand WashU's emergency physicians have worked on 24 clinical trials evaluating COVID-19 diagnostic tests. That seems like a lot in two years. Did it feel like a lot in two years? It did feel like a lot. Um, We have a very large emergency department and a pretty robust infrastructure to conduct clinical trials in the emergency department. So we're used to having a lot of studies going at the same time, but this was a major push having so many studies which were starting in such a short period of time. And then also just the push to try to get these results as quick as possible so that the FDA could have information to decide which tests would be the best for patients to be able to use. So yes, we were very, very busy at kind of a a rough time, I think, in healthcare in terms of having a brand new pandemic and not knowing what was going to happen with that. Um, But it's also an exciting time because um, we've been able to see the results of these studies turn into um, things that can be used by patients and by other healthcare providers very quickly. Yeah, I mean, these are products that so many of us are now using, uh, some people using them very regularly. And, And I should note here, these are not tests that WashU was developing on its own. You were doing this on behalf of other entities? Yeah, that's right. We did a combination of um, different types of COVID diagnostics. So first we were testing PCR-based assays that would be used in what's called a moderately complex lab. So those are like hospital-based laboratories. And then we started doing point-of-care tests. So those are tests that can be done by healthcare workers, but healthcare workers who don't have that same laboratory experience. So you might imagine in emergency departments or urgent cares or physician's offices being able to do those types of tests. And then we moved into testing those at-home COVID tests that uh, people are using on a regular basis. 
Hmm. So you're running all sorts of trials for all these different types of tests. And again, just in this two-year period, how did you find the people to use as, as subjects in these trials? So, like I mentioned, uh, the Barnes-Jewish Hospital Emergency Department is a pretty large emergency department. <laughs> so we have a lot of patients for all of our studies that could potentially qualify. Um, and we've built an um, IT infrastructure here to allow alerts from our electronic medical record for different studies. So for this one, we would set off an alert for every patient who had a COVID test ordered. And then my research team would um, look at that patient, see if they qualified for the studies, and then approach them and see if they were willing to participate. So because we have um, so many patients arriving and we have a nearly 24-7 infrastructure for screening patients in the emergency department, that allowed us to enroll patients very, very rapidly, which was really needed for this because we were trying to get the results so quickly so that we could actually get some things on the market that could be used. Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about 6,500 different patients, had you ever done anything of of this scale that quickly before? Uh, No, definitely not anything of that uh, that scale. Uh, Typically, we were enrolling maybe 2,000 to 3,000 patients per year Mm -hmm. in all of our clinical studies. So to have over 6,500 enrolled just in COVID diagnostic studies in a year and a half to two years was a, a big ramp up for us. And going back to those early days of the pandemic, I mean, this isn't something where you can just compare these new tests being pioneered to the gold standard test. When, when you first got started, there wasn't even a gold standard test. How do you adjust to like having that kind of moving target? Oh, yes, it's definitely been a moving target throughout the whole pandemic. So when we started, a lot of times the gold standard was a viral culture, which takes longer, but um, can be more assured of the results when we were doing those first diagnostic studies looking at uh, PCR-based assays in moderately complex labs. And then as more of those PCR-based tests were approved, they became the gold standard. But one of the challenges that we've seen is that in different phases of the different of the pandemic with uh, different strains, differences in the um, the amount of virus that patients are carrying around. So typically, we do these PCR-based assays, and we look at what's called the CT values, which is how many cycles of PCR has to be done in order to get to a level where the virus can be picked up. Well, higher numbers means that um, there's not as much virus in that patient's nose. And so over time, with uh, especially with like Omicron, we would see a lot of patients with really small amounts of virus in their nose. And what does that mean? Does that mean they actively have COVID and they're transmissible right now? Or is this something that's left over from maybe when they've been infected or exposed in the past? So that moving target has just been really challenging. So the current studies are actually using multiple different PCR-based tests as the gold standard instead of just one so that they can have more data. And then also we're collecting a lot of data about other things that might affect that viral level in the nose. So things like have they been um, vaccinated in the past? Have the patients ever had COVID in the past and how long ago that was? So really the studies have become more complicated, but I guess we've gotten smarter over time in thinking about all of that information that we need so that we can really make 
good decisions about which are the best tests. Hmm. We've all heard these anecdotal reports from friends who are like, oh, I tested negative for COVID and then I tried it again two days later and then I tested positive and maybe that earlier test should have gotten it. When you're getting people that come into the emergency room and you're convincing them to be a part of this trial, did you then have to follow up with them like, yeah, we're going to go back up your nose? Um, we didn't do any follow-up studies. There were some groups that were doing serial testing of patients. For us, we told patients that they really needed to rely on the standard of care tests that they were getting done in the emergency department. So those were all PCR-based tests being done in the hospital laboratory. The at-home tests that they were testing, you know, as, as I'm saying, they're they weren't FDA approved yet, so they were still being under study. So we didn't want them to use those results for any kind of decision making in terms of quarantining. It had to be the standard of care test. Mm. But you know, the reason that that happens where you get a negative test and then later a positive test, often that's because it's early in the um, disease course and so you have a smaller amount of virus in your nose, Mm -hmm. right? And so with the at-home tests, they're good because they're quick, they're easy, they're available, but they're not as sensitive as a PCR-based test that's done in the hospital. So that's why almost all of them recommend that you do a test, and if it's negative, you come back in uh, 24 to 72 hours and then test again. Because if you were early in the course of your illness, then that viral load in your nose might have gone up higher and been able to be detected. Mm -hmm. You know, thinking about these at-home tests that you were running these, these trials on, these were then the third type of of test that you were figuring out how to get reliable results. When you're doing it at home, you don't have medical professionals there to help you do this properly. How important was it to make sure these tests were also idiot-proof? Yeah, well, I don't want to say idiot-proof, but the reality is that, you know, we're asking people to do tests who don't typically do any kind of testing at home. So that made it to where we had to be careful about what types of patients we chose. Um, So we excluded anyone who had any type of healthcare background or any type of um, testing experience working in a laboratory or even, at some points, people who did glucose testing at home just Mm -hmm. because we wanted truly nice patients to be as safe as possible. Um, And then we had to do a lot of looking at the instructions uh, for these tests and thinking about, is this readable? Is this clear and understandable? Should we have more illustrations of how the um, samples should be collected and what the test results are going to look like? And for this, you have the problem of both collecting a good sample and doing the test correctly. So when we saw false negatives, a lot of times it seemed like it was related to the patient not collecting a good sample. Mm -hmm. So I would stress to people, if you're doing testing at home, that's probably the most important part is actually reading what it says about, a lot of them are go five times around each nostril and make sure you get a really good sample before you uh, start the test. 
Yeah, you really got to follow those directions, something that not every American is always good at. <laughs> Dr. House, I imagine in the last two years, you have just learned so much that if you went back and looked at where you were in February of 2020, you'd be like, all the things I didn't know. What, have you, what do you take from this experience of these 24 clinical trials and just so many, um, you know, different tests, different ways of testing and this, this entire experience? Yeah, well, I think um, knowing what I know now, I probably would have um, pushed to have some of the earlier studies designed a little bit differently because mm. we didn't know that there would be such a change in um, the viral loads in patients over time with all the different um, variants out there. But, you know, the other thing that I think back on that um, actually makes me kind of excited about this whole process is just seeing how people came together to make these studies happen. So mm. typically when we do these types of studies, it's months from the time we find out that a study is going to happen until we're actually able to start enrolling patients. And then we might enroll patients for months and it might be a few years before we get to the point of FDA approval. Well, now this was, we're doing this quickly. This is really important. We have to prioritize this. And everybody was involved in that. Our um, institutional review board, that's our ethics board, was prioritizing looking at COVID studies. Um, our grants office was prioritizing COVID grants so that we could make these things happen just so much um, more quickly. And I think the patients also were um, understanding of the fact that this was a really important thing and a need that was out there. And so um, a lot of people gave of their time to make this kind of thing happen. So the thing that I take away from it is just, you know, look what we can accomplish in a short period of time if a lot of people pull together. And I'm hoping that we can take that into other types of research even after the pandemic has ended. Yeah, that's, that. I hope you're right about that. You know, you say as the pandemic eventually ends here, uh, you know, we seem to be in another stage in St. Louis. So many places are going back to masking. And, you know, there's been a lot of cases lately. Do you see remaining challenges on the testing front? Um, and, and if so, what would you point to as, as one of the big ones? Yeah, so um, we've still had some shortages related to testing availability. It hasn't been as bad recently, but during the Omicron surge, that was pretty concerning. Mm -hmm. um, I think the next wave of what we're really looking at is as the pandemic eventually gets to the point where COVID is occurring more regularly with other respiratory viruses, like influenza and respiratory syncytial virus, we really want to have tests available that can test for all of those. So we've started some tests now that are point of care assays that can be used in like emergency departments and urgent cares that will combine um, both testing for COVID as well as uh, influenza and um, some for RSV. So I think that'll help people who have a um, viral viral symptoms, fever, they're not sure whether it's COVID or not. It's important to figure out, well, is it flu and do you need treatment for flu mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So I think that's kind of the next stage of where these tests are going to go and what's going to be needed as we get into the fall and winter months. Well, Dr. Stacy House, thank you for joining us today and, and sharing all this information. Well, thanks for having me.
This episode was produced by Danny Wisentowski with audio engineering by Aaron Doerr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.